0: In 1739, Persian Emperor Nadir Shah led an army of approximately 20,000 men against Muhammad Shah, the Mughal emperor of India. In a ruthless invasion, Nadir and his troops decimated Muhammad's armies in what is known as the Battle of Karnal. Muhammad eventually surrendered, handing over his empire in Delhi.
1: This empire wasn't only land, but included something so rare and tantalizing, its true value was incalculable, the Great Mogul Diamond.
0: However, this
1: 280-carat gemstone came with a curse. Those who came into contact with the Great Diamond had gone bankrupt, been exiled, and had their entire empire overthrown.
0: Nadir, its new owner,
1: was not spared. In 1747, assassins broke into Nadir's quarters and decapitated him.
0: And just like that, the great mogul diamond disappeared forever from the annals of history.
1: Hi, I'm Molly.
0: And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing.
1: Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned, from the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts.
0: If it's gone,
1: we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory.
0: Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen.
1: Today, we will be looking into the 1747 disappearance of the Great Mogul Diamond, which arose from the dirt of a dried riverbed in India and became one of the world's most puzzling precious stones. The
0: Great Mogul Diamond had a brief and troubling history. It was kept as a testament to its owner's wealth and power.
1: But it was never in the same hands for long. The brilliant diamond witnessed this exile of kings and the fall of empires.
0: But in 1747, after the assassination of its final owner, all records of the diamond virtually disappeared.
1: How could such a grand treasure be so quickly lost to time?
0: Our first theory claims that it ended up in the British crown jewels after England's colonization
1: of India. Our second theory assumes that the diamond is actually masquerading as another famous diamond, the Orlov, now residing in a Russian museum. But whether it's hiding in plain sight or the diamond remains in some other unknown location, the great mogul diamond remains a much sought-after mystery.
0: To fully explore this story, we must go back to the diamond's origins at the center of the earth.
1: Most people believe that diamonds come from coal, but the truth is coal rarely plays a part in the formation of diamonds. Coal is produced by ancient plant deposits on the Earth's surface, but most diamonds come from the Earth's mantle, nearly 100 miles below the surface.
0: And when diamonds emerge from those extreme depths, they don't come quietly. They are spewed out through violent volcanic eruptions known as kimberlite eruptions. These are extremely rare, and it is believed that the last kimberlite eruption occurred more than 25 million years ago. The great Mogul diamond was most likely formed from one of these eruptions. It was discovered along the Krishna River in the Golconda mine in India.
1: India was the birthplace of the diamond trade, which probably began around 400 BC. In fact, until 1725, when diamonds were first discovered in Brazil, India was the only source of these gems. These unique stones were quickly seen as valuable indicators of class status and traded along the Silk Road, a network of trade routes connecting the East with the West.
0: Not to mention, Early civilizations actually believed that diamonds were gifts from the gods and those who found or received them would be blessed with wealth, strength,
1: and good health. If that was the case, they must have believed the great Mughal diamond would bring them immortality because it was so massive. In 1656, when it made its first real appearance in written histories, the Islamic Mughal Empire was thriving in India. Persian emperor Shah
0: Jahan, whose name means king of the world, presided over the throne, and his taste for extravagance reflected this ostentatious title. In 1632, he commissioned the famed Taj Mahal in Agra, a stunning mausoleum he had built for his young wife after her death.
1: Shah Jahan also had the famous peacock throne, adorned with gold and covered in rubies, emerald and pearls, built for himself, But he was about to get even fancier, because in 1656, a wealthy general named Amir Jemla came to Delhi and met with Shah Jahan to establish good diplomatic relations.
0: Jemla worked for Abdullah, king of Golconda, India, and was trying to broker an alliance between the two leaders. But he didn't come empty-handed. Among his gifts for the emperor was the great Mughal diamond. At the time, it was the largest diamond ever discovered.
1: In its rough, original state, this stone weighed a whopping 787.5 carats. That's equal to more than 157 grams, about as heavy as a billiards ball.
0: Or half as heavy as a human heart.
1: That's huge. The average size for an engagement ring in the U.S. in 2017 was 0.9 carats, so not even one carat and that size goes for about $6,000, depending on design, retailer, and other factors. To give a vague sense of its value, one of the largest diamonds ever sold at auction was a 118-carat diamond, a fraction of the size of the Great Mogul that went for $30.6 million in 2013.
0: As for what it looked like, it has been described as an egg cut in half, the top end formed a cone shape, the opposite end a flat circle. This shape was referred to as a rose cut because the shape somewhat resembles a rosebud. Rose cuts are relatively rare, and this gave the great mogul diamond an even more
1: unique quality. Shah Jahan was quite pleased with a gift, but ordered that the diamond be cut to make it fit for an emperor such as he. The stone in its natural state would not do. There were too many aesthetic flaws like lines and cracks, which in jeweler-speak are called inclusions. Ancient
0: Indian text, the Ranapariska, alluded to the importance of a flawless diamond, saying, quote, wise men should not use a diamond with visible flaws as a gem, end quote. So Jahan hired Hortensio Borgio, a Venetian lapidary or gemstone cutter, to refine it.
1: Borgio began cutting the stone, grinding away all the problematic flaws. But go figure, the more he ground, the smaller and lighter the stone got. After Borgio's work, the stone was a mere 283 carats, less than half the size of the original. This would weigh about two ounces, as much as a stack of 12 nickels. Not a billiards ball, but still quite the hefty jewel. Unfortunately, the new size and weight became a bit of a
0: problem. The size of the stone was one of its primary appeals. Emperor Shah Jahan was furious, so much so he wanted to execute Borgio for his poor
1: workmanship. But Jahan stopped short of that. Instead, he fined Borgio 10,000 rupees, basically all the money the diamond cutter had to his name. Borgio paid Jahan and left a very poor and shamefaced man. It seemed that Borgio may have been the first man to fall prey to the curse of the great mogul.
0: Several years later, in 1657, Jahan became very ill in his old age. This launched a competition for the throne between his four sons. The youngest, Aurangzeb, killed
1: one of his brothers and eventually claimed the empire he sent his father away to the Red Fort, a sandstone fortress located on the Yamuna River. It was basically a prison for Shah Jahan, where he spent the last years of his life until his death in 1666.
0: Whatever happened to respecting your elders, let alone your own father? And I have to ask,
1: could the so-called curse of the diamond have led to Jahan's plight? Possibly, but we can also blame Aurangzeb's greed. He wanted the kingdom and all its treasures to himself, including the great Mogul diamond. Aurangzeb kept all that he wrongfully inherited in a special chamber in the palace. He was very proud of it.
0: His collection caught the eye of a famous jewel merchant from France named Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. Tavernier was a world traveler and gem aficionado who made six voyages to the east between
1: 1632 and 1668. He wrote extensively about his experiences, eventually publishing the two-volume book The Six Voyages of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. It became a bestseller and was translated into four languages in his lifetime.
0: This man was so obsessed with diamonds that he traveled at his own expense in search of them and reveled in the opportunity to study them. Since only royalty and the extremely affluent could get hold of such prizes, Tavernier met with a lot of important global leaders. He was known internationally for his expertise in gemstones. One such leader was Shah Jahan's son, King Aurangzeb, who led Tavernier get acquainted with the great Mughal diamond.
1: Officers escorted Tavernier into a small chamber where the king was sitting on his throne. Tavernier then met the chief keeper of the jewels, Akel Khan, who commanded four eunuchs to fetch the stones. They brought the gems out on gilded wooden trays covered with red velvet cloths to protect them.
0: Such presentation, and understandably so. Tavernier was awed by all this and documented the experience, writing, quote, The first piece which Akel Khan put in my hands was the great diamond, which is a round rose, cut very high on one side. On the lower edge, there is a slight crack and a little flaw in it. Its water is beautiful."
1: Water refers to a diamond's degree of brilliance. So according to Tavernier, the great mogul was extremely bright and sparkly, to put it in simpler terms. It made quite the impression on him, and he forever immortalized it by drawing a sketch of it in his book. After
0: this, Tavernier continued on his journey of jewels, leaving the great Mughal behind. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, they say.
1: The diamond remained with the Mughal Empire, passing hands to an emperor by the name of Muhammad Shah in 1719, a little over 50 years after Aurangzeb ruled the region but it would not stay with this new leader for long. Perhaps
0: we have the curse to blame for that, because Emperor Muhammad Shah was in for a world of trouble.
1: Could the great Mogul diamond have been responsible for the fall of Muhammad Shah's empire? We'll find out after the break. Now, back to the story.
0: In 1738, Mughal Emperor Muhammad Shah possessed one of the region's most valued treasures, the Great Mughal Diamond. But that and everything else Muhammad owned was about to be threatened. A bloodthirsty emperor from Persia was coming for the Mughal Empire. His
1: name was
0: Nadir Shah. Born in
1: 1688 in Khorasan, Persia, Nadir grew up a poor peasant— He was forced into slavery, but escaped captivity and eventually became a soldier. The military was where he thrived. Nadir advanced quickly there, but when he conflicted with a high-ranking official, Nadir went rogue and formed his own army. Bold move. Definitely. And it set the stage for Nadir's rise to power. In 1729, he freed Persia from Afghan control and seven years later ascended to the throne as Emperor of Persia. Not long after, he went on a conquering rampage throughout much of the East, which led him to just outside of Delhi, India, with a foolproof strategy for a takeover. At Karnal, 68 miles north of Delhi,
0: Nadir Shah led his army of 20,000 against Muhammad Shah's forces consisting of nearly 300,000 soldiers and 2,000 war elephants. Although Nadir's troops were greatly outnumbered, Muhammad's forces had a disadvantage. Their artillery was fairly antiquated, much too heavy and hard to maneuver.
1: Nadir Shah, ever the military strategist, used a three-prong approach— dividing his limited troops into three main sectors. Using one of these lines of offense as a diversion, Shah commanded an ambush, and it was downhill for the Mughal troops from there. The Persians defeated their enemy within three hours of the battle's start. This was the beginning of the end of the Mughal dynasty.
0: Muhammad Shah soon handed over his empire to Nadir. Soon after, Nadir began enforcing strict laws and taxation on citizens. The Persian military presence was oppressive, and soldiers were quick to punish civilians. This, in turn, catalyzed an uprising as civilians fought back, killing Nadir's
1: men. When Nadir himself rode out from his newly claimed palace, a man fired a musket at him, narrowly missing him. This was the last straw, and it drove Nadir to seek safety at the top of a mosque. Once there, he ordered his men to enter all the areas where Persian soldiers were being attacked and kill every civilian inside. He raised his sword, which signaled the start of a massacre.
0: Around 30,000 civilians, including women and children, were killed by Persians. After the bloodshed, Nadir had his men plunder all the riches and treasures of the Mughal dynasty, stealing the famous Peacock Throne and, of course, the legendary Great Mughal Diamond.
1: Sadly, Nadir's bloodlust only increased as he traveled the lands to gain more territory. He loved war, and he took pride in decimating villages and cities. At one point, when told that there would be no war in the afterlife, Nadir responded with, quote, how can there be any delights there, End quote.
0: His murderous rampages caught up with him, though, and he developed severe liver and gastrointestinal problems. Not to mention, his mind began to get the best of him as he became increasingly psychotic as time went on.
1: Then, in 1741, an assassination attempt put him over the edge. Nadir was convinced that his eldest son, Reza Quli Mirza, was the man behind the plot, so he had him blinded. Six
0: years later, after Nadir's physical and mental states continued to deteriorate, several of his commanders entered his private quarters while he slept.
1: Once there, they attacked him, but he awoke and fought back. He killed two of them, but the others managed to cut off his head. Thus, in 1747, Nadir Shah's violent reign came to an end.
0: Nadir left behind a treasure trove. Among the valuables, the Great Mogul Diamond, or so we think. We don't know for sure, because after Nadir's death, the diamond couldn't be found.
1: Or tracked. Where did that majestic stone sneak off to? Was it strategically taken? Or did it simply get lost in the mix? One thing to note is that the Great Mogul Diamond is only called that in Jean-Baptiste Tavernier's report. That's the name he gave it.
0: Many believe that the Great Mogul Diamond could have become the koh Diamond. The Great Mogul Diamond disappeared from written history, leaving no track record. So when a similar diamond popped up in British records, Some historians and jewelers suggested it was actually that same stone making a reappearance. Let's take a look at the story of the Koh-i-Noor and see if it lines up with the Great Mogul. First of all, Koh-i-Noor means mountain of light in Persian. According to an article in Scientific American, it was Nadir Shah who named the Great Mogul the Koh-i-Noor when he first laid eyes on it. This would have been in 1739, when it fell into his hands after the Battle of Karnal. Perhaps the great mogul was simply renamed by its last confirmed owner.
1: Mountain of light sounds as though it would benefit anyone who possessed it. However, Hindu text claimed only a woman could wear the koh If a man owned it, he would be cursed. Another aspect which links the two diamonds, making a case for their shared identity.
0: Right. Shah Jahan died in captivity after his son basically imprisoned him. Nadir Shah was murdered by his own men.
1: In the story of the koh i after Nadir Shah's death, the stone passed to one of his generals, Ahmad Shah Durrani. His descendant, Shah Shuja Durrani, eventually got a hold of the diamond and brought it back to India in 1813. In the early 19th century, the Koh diamond passed to Shah Shia of Afghanistan, who had inherited it.
0: Now the Maharaja of Punjab, India, a man by the name of Ranjit Singh, got wind of the Koh prestige, and he wanted it badly.
1: He tried to strike a deal with the Afghan leader, but Shah Shia didn't want to hand it over. This caused some diplomatic issues and muddied the political waters between the two regions. Singh stalled by lying several times, first saying that he pawned the Kuanor, then saying it was lost with a bunch of other jewels. And after the third request, he sent a topaz gem to Ranjit Singh, claiming that was the jewel. Singh was furious at the ruse and, in a surprising power move, sent a guard to Shia's house to prevent him from drinking or eating for two days. Shia finally caved and agreed to hand over the diamond.
0: And so it made its way to a new owner yet again. In 1843, Duleep Singh, the last of Ranjit Singh's sons, became the ruler of Punjab and inherited the koh He was only 10 years old at the time.
1: While this was going on, the British of the East India Company and the Sikh Empire were entangled in a series of wars for control of the continent. The East India Company had first arrived on the shores of India in 1608 with two goals in mind, establish trade and acquire territory. In 1615, the British established a factory at Surat and eventually formed several trading posts along the
0: coasts. The British established large communities around the three primary cities of Calcutta, Bombay, and Madras. But what started out as a business venture eventually transformed into a military takeover. The company gained a stronghold in the region and eventually began to dominate Indian government and education.
1: By 1849, the British claimed the ultimate victory and gained ownership of Lahore, the capital city of Punjab.
0: And guess what? The British wanted the koh They made this clear in the treaty they forced young Dilip Singh to sign. Part of the treaty read, quote, the gem called the koh shall be surrendered by the Maharaja of Lahore to the Queen of England, end quote. Once surrendered, the diamond was put in supposedly safekeeping. It was weighed at 187 carats, which is almost 100 less than the last weight of the great mogul.
1: So if the koh Noor is the great mogul diamond, it would have been cut sometime in the century between Shah Nadir's murder and the British acquisition of the diamond. It seems odd that any owners would want to cut the diamond— while Tavernier did note a slight flaw that an owner might have wanted to remove, cutting the diamond that severely seems illogical.
0: Losing so many carats would certainly sink its value, but there are eerier similarities between the great Mogul diamond and the koh
1: i Once it was weighed, three members of the British government at Punjab were tasked with holding the koh i until they were ordered to do otherwise. One of those men, John Lawrence, would be the one to keep it on his person. But one night, Lawrence placed the diamond, which was now encased in a box, inside his coat pocket. However, when he changed for dinner and removed his coat, he forgot to transfer the diamond. About
0: six weeks later, the men received a message that Queen Victoria wanted the diamond immediately. And then came the oh-no moment for Lawrence... He didn't know where the diamond was.
1: We'll find out where the diamond went after the break. Now, back to the story. In
0: 1859, John Lawrence, tasked with protecting the Kohinoor diamond, had forgotten it in his coat pocket several weeks earlier. And now the Queen of England herself was ordering it to be delivered to her as soon as possible.
1: Pretending he knew exactly where it was, Lawrence quickly ran to find his servant and asked if he had found anything in his coat pocket weeks earlier. The
0: servant replied, Yes, I found it and put it in one of your boxes. The servant brought the box to him, and Lawrence opened it to find the diamond safe
1: and sound. Wow. Can you imagine the relief Lawrence must have felt? What a close call. Indeed it was. It could have easily
0: been stolen or lost, and that would have been a hefty price to pay.
1: Now that the diamond was located, it was on its way to England. But first, it had to survive the streets of Bombay, India, and some of its rougher areas.
0: It passed through unscathed, and once it reached London, it was put in an iron box and deposited in the government treasury. On July 3, 1850, the deputy chairman hand-delivered it to Buckingham Palace for the Queen.
1: But as it crossed into Britain's epicenter, it brought with it the whispers of suspicion. The legend of this diamond, that it carried a bad luck curse, became a rumor that swept the nation and many were wary of its potential power.
0: This curse is reminiscent of the curse that came with the Great Mogul Diamond.
1: The similarities between that and the Koh-i-Noor are stacking up. And this curse only made the Kohenor more alluring in England. It debuted in the great exhibition in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. People came in droves to view it. It was the toast of the town. But then people started to talk and criticize the diamond. The main note was that it didn't shine as brilliantly as everyone had hoped. And there was one important man who agreed with this sentiment, Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband. So he ordered it be recut and polished.
0: Prince Albert hired a Dutchman named Vorzonger, a reputable diamond cutter, who traveled to London to do the work. This process took 38 days. The gem now weighed 105 carats, but the recutting allowed its face to refract more light, so it appeared to be brighter and more brilliant.
1: Queen Victoria began wearing it as a brooch. There's a photo of her, taken in 1887, in which she is clad in diamonds, but the Koh-i-Noor stands out as the largest and most notable. The stone wouldn't stay in that brooch forever, though. It was eventually placed in the center of a royal crown, and Queen Alexandra, Victoria's daughter-in-law, was the first to wear it.
0: Then, in 1937, the Koh-i-Noor was reset into a new crown, and the queen mother began wearing it. The Queen Mother refers to Elizabeth Angela Marguerite Bowes-Lyon, the wife of King George VI and the mother of Queen Elizabeth II and Princess Margaret. She even wore it at her own funeral in 2002.
1: That was the last time the koh made a public appearance. The diamond remains in the crown and now resides in the jewel house in the Tower of London. There's been much controversy surrounding the true ownership of this diamond. Indian government officials have repeatedly demanded it be returned, citing that it was forcibly taken during England's colonization of India. According to an
0: article from The Telegraph posted in 2016, the Ministry of Culture said, quote, The Government of India further reiterates its resolve to make all possible efforts to bring back the Kohinoor diamond in an amicable manner.
1: End quote. And the controversy continues to this day. But the history of the koh i prior to being in British hands is muddy, and it's hard to verify who exactly owned it or where exactly it came from, other than a mine in Golconda.
0: The same area the Great Mogul Diamond came from.
1: Could this mean that the koh i was indeed the Great Mogul Diamond at one point? And perhaps it was only its name that changed?
0: A mineralogist by the name of James Tennant thinks so. He believes that the koh displays similarities to the great mogul described by expert jeweler Jean-Baptiste Tavernier during his study of it. Tennant writes, quote, the koh i had a flaw near the summit, which, being on a line of cleavage parallel to the upper surface, may very possibly have been produced when the upper portion was removed, End quote.
1: If you'll recall... Much of the Great Mogul was removed in the mid-1600s when Shah Jahan had it recut. However, the koh weight never matched up with the Great Mogul. According to record, the last known weight of the Great Mogul was 283 carats, but when the koh made it to England, it was only 187 carats, some historians believe that this is because Jean Baptiste Tavernier may have recorded an inaccurate weight when he wrote about the Great Mogul in his report.
0: Interesting. Putting the Koh-i-Noor aside for a moment, there's another name, another identity that the Great Mogul could have assumed. It's time to hear the story of the Orloff diamond, which ended up in the hands of Russian Empress Catherine the Great in 1768.
1: This story is steeped much more in mystery, legend, and criminal intrigue, and it begins in the temple of Sri Rangam in southern India. It's unclear how this legend originated, but it's closely tied with the Orlov.
0: Inside a temple dating back to the mid-17th century stands a statue of the deity Lord Ranganatha. His eyes were composed of two stunning diamonds.
1: In the mid-18th century, several countries were competing for territory in India in what is known as the Carnatic Wars. During this time, a French soldier abandoned his post and deserted his unit. Going under the radar, he found a job near the town of Srirangam. As he worked, he listened to the locals speak of the temple and the idol containing the precious jewels. This Frenchman's desire was sparked, and he knew he had to steal the diamonds. But this would be a most
0: impossible mission. Why? Because only Hindus were allowed in the temple, and the statue remained in a sacred space several enclosures deep. So, the Frenchman converted to Hinduism and gained the trust of several priests who
1: worked in the temple. Eventually, he gained access inside, And as he continued to prove his devotion, he was given the task of guardian to the central shrine. Not long after he began serving there, a storm struck the land and the Frenchman found himself alone inside the temple. He saw his window of opportunity.
0: He approached the statue, stared up at the gleaming diamond eyes, and began to pry one from its socket until... It came free. After this, he must have gotten scared because instead of prying out the other diamond, the Frenchman fled. He climbed the temple walls, managed to swim across a river, and navigated the nearby jungles until he reached the city of Madras. There, he quickly sold the diamond to a British sea captain for much less than it was worth probably so he could get out of the area quickly with some money
1: in his pocket. And maybe he was afraid of a possible curse it was rumored to carry. After that, the diamond was sold several times by different merchants until it was purchased by a man named Shafras. He was an Armenian diamond dealer living in Amsterdam.
0: The year was 1768, 21 years after the great mogul disappeared following Nadir Shah's assassination. Count Grigory Grigorievich Orloff bought the diamond from Schafras in Amsterdam. Like the Frenchman, Orloff, too, was on a mission. But instead of stealing a jewel, he was looking to steal back a heart, the heart of Catherine the Great.
1: Born in Prussia in 1729 and originally called Sophie, Catherine was the daughter of a German prince who didn't have much money to his name. But what he lacked in funds, he had in connections. And Catherine was married off to Peter III of the Romanov dynasty in 1745.
0: It was hardly a match made in heaven. The two couldn't stand each other. Peter inherited the throne in 1762, but he was strongly disliked by his people, including his wife, who decided to take a lover, Count Orlov. They began an affair, and with the help of a secret group of conspirators, planned the assassination of her husband, Peter.
1: Once the assassination was carried out in 1762, Catherine became empress. The throne was hers. It was a new horizon involving new responsibilities and new desires. Orloff became a thing of the past for her. She had her eyes set on new suitors. Orloff was
0: crushed. He was determined to win Catherine back, and that's what led him to the jeweler named Shafras who showed him the stunning rose-cut diamond. He bought it immediately and had it sent to Catherine.
1: While she accepted the diamond with much delight, she didn't rekindle her romance with Orloff, but she did shower him with lavish gifts as she did with all her lovers. That was the end of
0: their story, but not the end of the diamonds. It was placed in the imperial scepter,
1: a metal rod wielded by the person in power. The diamond remains in the scepter, which is displayed in the diamond fund in the Kremlin Museum in Russia.
0: Now, there are a number of reasons why some historians have claimed this diamond could be the great mogul. First is the striking similarity between the Orlov and the drawing done by Jean-Baptiste Tavernier back in 1665.
1: Both diamonds have the same half-egg shape. Both are rose-cut stones with similar facets— and their coloring, both diamonds are described as white with a hint of the slightest blue.
0: But there's a specific detail that seems to really intrigue historians. Tavernier wrote about it, saying there was a slight crack and flaw at the bottom of the Great Mogul. There also happens to be a slight indentation at the base of the Orlov that
1: could be this very flaw the weight of the orloff is about 190 carats slightly more than the koanor was when it first came to england however neither diamond matches the supposed weight of the great mogul
0: various jewel experts and historians have debated whether the great mogul might have taken on a new identity following the chaos
1: of war yet there's another theory that has been tossed around that the great mogul was cut into several smaller pieces and all those pieces went their separate ways. While this is possible, it seems as though whoever came into possession
0: of the great mogul would want to preserve its grandiosity to maintain its value, which leaves us with the likely scenario that the great mogul adopted a new name and is hiding in plain sight. The question is, which
1: name did it take? I think it makes the most sense that the Great Mogul became the Koh noor Nadir Shah, who acquired the Great Mogul after defeating Muhammad Shah, called it the Koh noor because it reminded him of a mountain of light. Also, when drawings were done of the Koh noor in England, it had a similar diameter to the Great Mogul when drawn by Jean Baptiste Tavernier.
0: You make some good points, but I have to say I think it's a stronger possibility that it became the Orloff. I say this because of the color. The koh is simply a white diamond, no noticeable bluish tinge. But the Orloff has that blue coloring attributed to the great mogul. The diamonds also share the unusual rose cut, and the Orloff diamond closely resembles Tavernier's drawing.
1: Well, I guess we have to acknowledge that there's no definitive answer. But I will say this. If you'll recall, the great mogul diamond supposedly carried with it a curse that its owner would face terrible misfortune if the owner was a man. But any female owner would be immune to the curse and actually prosper. If we look back at the history of the Koh-i-Noor, especially the female leaders who wore it, we see a long line of British women surviving and thriving. Queen Victoria, Queen Alexandra, Queen Mary, the Queen Mother, and, even though she doesn't wear it, the diamond's current owner, Queen Elizabeth II, is the longest-reigning monarch since Queen Victoria.
0: So, if you believe the two diamonds are one and the same, you're admitting that you buy into the legend of its curse.
1: I guess I am,
0: yes. Well, whatever the true identity of the Great Mogul is now, we know the Great Mogul, in all its brilliance, despite its so called imperfections, sparked greed. It fed into human hubris. It was one of the most coveted rewards in the spoils of war.
1: It saw many wars, deaths, and assassinations through its sometimes tragic, always tense history. The great mogul diamond has probably stood witness to more than we can even imagine. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of Parcast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have
0: asked us how you can help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way you can do that
1: is to leave a five-star review. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at ParCast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found.
0: Gone was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Jessica Malo and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.